and welcome to episode 1333 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindberg of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. Hello. We are back to the team preview podcast series today. We will be talking about the Colorado Rockies with Corey Sullivan, who is a former Colorado Rocky himself and is now a Rockies analyst for Root Sports. And we will also be talking about the Pittsburgh Pirates with Stephen Nesbitt of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. But before we get to them, we just wanted to banter a bit about some of the news, some of the proposals that have been floated this week. Can you concisely explain whether and when any of this is going to happen? Because I know there's been a lot of confusion. We've seen some proposals that have been leaked that the Players Association has suggested. It's in response to measures that the league has suggested. So it's kind of a collaborative process, kind of a, a negotiation where MLB can implement some things unilaterally that were proposed last year, but it's an ongoing discussion about changes to the game. And and most of the ideas that have been floated will not be enacted this season and may never be enacted, but there is a chance at least that we will see some of this stuff happen soon. Yeah, I think from what I can tell, it sounds like the pitch clock is going to show up in 2019 because that's something that you can do immediately. It's not going to really change anyone anyone the look of anyone's roster based on strategy or the way it was put together now something like the universal designated hitter however that's mm-hmm. something that it's been proposed something that could just be be spread as soon as like this season like the season that starts in less than two months uh, but <laughs> right. i think that is very unlikely because even if you consider the universal dh inevitable which i think that it is it's just i, I think enough nationally owners would be like no you can't you can't do that to us this late in the game we haven't planned yeah. for it so something like that, I think, is going to take a little while. But pitch clock absolutely could be quick. We'll get into the proposals, so I don't need to, to read them all mm-hmm. down. But something like the uh, the major league contracts for two-sport players, could you could see that one show up pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, there's I know that they, they exchange a lot of proposals on a regular basis uh, before mm-hmm. the start of years. And generally speaking, those proposals don't result in anything taking place immediately. But there is a lot here. And... Uh, some of the, some of them are fairly significant, and so I think we are likely over the course of the next five years, we're likely to see some some real movement in baseball adjusting. Yeah, and just big picture, general statement: A, I think it's good that these two sides are talking about anything because of all the tension between labor and, and management this off season, and it doesn't directly transfer to contracts and earnings and all of that. But hey, at least if you're in the room and on the phone call and you're talking to each other, maybe that thaws things a little bit so that there can be progress in other areas. And generally speaking, I think change is good. I know change can be scary, but there's been so little change in baseball when it comes to on-field rules. I mean, yes, replay has happened, but just about everything else, uh, occasionally there's like the Buster Posey slide rule and the Chase Utley slide rule and all of those little things. But in terms of trying to curb some of the somewhat worrisome trends that are going on in the game today, there's really been almost no action taken, which... I take as sort of a positive because, yes, these things seem inexorable, but on the other hand, no one has made any attempt to stop them yet. And in many cases, I think it is a very simple thing to try to at least halt the rise in strikeouts, for instance, or game time. I mean, there are things that you can do that just haven't been done, and and baseball has not been proactive in that area compared to other sports. So some of these measures are designed to address those things. You have polled the Fangraphs audience on each of these measures, as documented by Jeff Passan and, and others, and you have 
gotten some results. So we're just going to go down the list here and you'll explain how the Fangraphs audience feels about them. Granted, the Fangraphs audience probably does not represent the audience of Major League Baseball as a whole, but it's still interesting stuff. So we'll start with the top one on your list, the three batter minimum. So I guess you can explain whatever isn't self-explanatory about what that is and then give us the data. It is a three batter minimum. (laughs) is what the proposal is, a proposal that all pitchers must face at least three batters unless they get injured or end in inning. It is a proposal designed to reduce mid-inning pitching changes, which are bad. So I pulled the the Fangraphs audience. And so for each proposal, I had two polls. One is just a a strict yay, nay, uh, do you approve of it or, or disapprove of it? And the other one, I, I wanted to measure people's passion in in answering because not all of these proposals mm-hmm. will be met with the same fervor. I already said universal designated hitter. We know that all of the proposals can't measure up to one's fervor. So I uh, I put that on a one to five scale where five was I care about this a lot and one is I care about this hardly at all. Anyway, three better minimum. 48% of the audience supports it, which means 52% of the audience says no. Not this rule. And it was met with, a, let's call it a passion score of 3.2, just above the middle of the scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there's a, a lot to like about this, a lot to dislike if you're a loogie, but I think the loogie has already become kind of an endangered species in baseball. And obviously, if you have to face three batters, maybe that means fewer pitching changes. It means guys pacing themselves more. Maybe it means lower velocities because guys aren't going all out. Maybe it means fewer strikeouts, quicker games. So I'm wary of too much intervention, but this seems like something that would at least have the intended effect to some degree and and wouldn't be too disruptive. Next one is even less, well, probably less disruptive and and certainly much more expected, the 20-second pitch clock. Uh, Yeah, and there was even a point made that they could even turn the clock off when there were runners on base, which I don't know what you're doing Mm -hmm. at that point. Anyway, 70% of of the audience supports it, 70%, and uh, that was given a passion score, a passion rating of 3.3, again, just a little above the three batter minimum. So people care a little more about the pitch clock, and mostly they are in support of it. Yeah, seems inevitable. We talked to Riley O'Brien yesterday. Pitchers who have pitched with it in the minor leagues don't seem to mind it. It has seemed to have a positive effect on game time. So sure, bring on the pitch clock. All right, next one, I'm going to guess that the uh, passion (laughs) score, (laughs) this one's probably pretty high, the universal DH. Yeah, 63% of the audience supports it. They want the universal DH passion score. I'll just tell you, it's the highest of the 10. Uh, (laughs) Passion score 4.0. So people... On average, people care about it. It's not all fives. It's not fives all the way down, but still, four is a high rating. I'll tell you, these passion scores are they are pretty constricted. It's all within a pretty narrow range. People care about the universal DH the most, and the bulk of people seem to seem to want it. It does feel inevitable. It's a, it's a union proposal. Uh, there's some national owners to convince, but it's it's going to happen, y'all. It's <laughs> it's going to cut. It's going to happen. We're all going to miss pitchers hitting. We're all going to miss being able to analyze the data, but it is going to make baseball better. So start getting used to yeah. it. Yeah, I'm in favor of it. I I do understand the people who are passionately in favor of pitchers hitting, but we've talked about this. I I think it's just reached the point where pitchers can't hit and we shouldn't have to watch them do it. And I don't think that the effects on strategy will be as serious as as people 
are worried about you know i don't know whether people will really miss double switches when they're gone for instance but it'll be interesting to see whenever it does happen because so many of these measures you know like the the fake to third and throw to first move i wrote an article like lamenting the loss of that i mean not seriously but just as a weird kind of quirk and people were worried about making the intentional walks automatic instead of throwing the four balls i mean no one cares when these things happen i will be curious to see whether the universal da is something that we all just sort of accept and I think over a long enough period it will be because we know that AL fans tend to like the DH and and support it so eventually NL fans will come around I just it'll be war for a while all right the next one this is kind of ill-defined to this point but draft incentives for winning yeah, so this is kind of vague as it was written about, but essentially low-revenue teams, if they had successful seasons, could benefit in the draft by maybe getting some sort of compensation round pick or maybe higher draft bonuses. And then there would potentially be penalties, again, loosely defined, but penalties for teams that are very bad two years in a row. So anyway, mm-hmm. even though it's hard to pull people on a super vague proposal that doesn't have much definition, 58% of people support the idea. Uh, that was given a passion rating of 3.2, so tied with the three better minimum. I would like to see some more information on this, but I think it's not a bad idea. I've heard from people who work from teams recently who do think that baseball could stand to incentivize winning a little bit more. And when mm-hmm. <laughs> when the teams themselves are seeing that, then maybe it's something to listen to. Yep. Sounds good. Need to hear more, but I like the idea. Next, potential extra service time. Potential extra service time. So there's the proposal for for some service time bonuses, if you will. And again, kind of loosely defined, but there's the idea that, you know, you'll have a case like Chris Bryant, who's held down just long enough for his year of service to not count as a full year of service. That's what the Cubs did to delay his free agency by an entire year by keeping Bryant down for like a week and a half. He filed a grievance that I think is still working its way uh, toward, I don't know, the Supreme Court, wherever those things go. In any case, (laughs) the idea here is that players could earn extra service time if they have good seasons, if they make the playoffs, qualify for awards. I think you can look at someone like Ronald Acuna this year, who, what is a a full service year, 172 days or something like that. And Acuna, I believe, played 159 days. And so... What the Braves did, not surprisingly, manipulated Acuna's service time to keep him down so that he would uh, delay his free agency by another year. But presumably, under this proposal, because Acuna won the Rookie of the Year in the National League, was great, and went to the playoffs, he would have gotten enough bonus service time to earn the equivalent of a full year so that Mm -hmm. the manipulation would have been turned around. In any case, 67% of the audience says, yes, we like whatever this would be, with a passion rating of 3.3, tying it with the pitch clock. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, next one, you alluded to it, but a two-sport athlete exception so that two-way players could get major league contracts. And this is not two-way players as in pitchers and hitters. This is two-way players as in baseball players and football players, for instance, right? So this is an incentive to get guys who are weighing offers from two sports or or potential in two sports to choose baseball. Yeah. So this had almost the most support of any proposal. 76% of the audience said, yeah, let's do it, but also had by far the lowest passion rating of 2.5. People don't care, but they say, well, what's the harm? There used to be major league contracts given to drafted players. Bryce Harper, I believe, signed a major league contract out of the draft. It used to be somewhat common practice, and then it was done away with. And, uh, you know, if you can get more money to players in the draft, sure. By doing this, it sort of reveals that a lot of players in the draft deserve more money, but better to get more money to some players than to get it to none. So even though maybe Mm -hmm. this could be ripe for abuse, it could be written in such a way that it would be fine. 
There's not that mm-hmm. many two-sport athletes. Let's be honest. We don't talk about yeah. Kyler Murray or players like him that much. That explains the low passion rating. In any case, high support. All right. Number seven, a single trade deadline. So this would just get rid of the August waiver period. Everything would have to be done by a certain date, and it would be also in earlier July, not after the All-Star break, not the end of July, but before the All-Star break. So this is kind of really a combination of two proposals, moving the deadline earlier and then combining both deadlines. Yeah, I wish I could have pulled them separately, but it's all one. What are you going to do? 55% of the audience supports it uh, with a passion rating of 3.0. That's the second lowest so far of the ones we've covered. I think that the idea of a single trade deadline is good. I think the idea of putting it before the All-Star game is bad. I think it does not incentivize competition in the way that you would think. If anything, it just means there's less room between good teams and bad teams when you have to make the decision. So you're going to have fewer teams just making moves. It's going to be harder to tell when you are or aren't in the race. So I would think mm-hmm. a single trade deadline at the end of July uh, would be fine. Keep it where the current non-waiver trade deadline is or even move it into August a little bit just so you have clearly defined buyers and sellers. So anyway, that's yeah. where I am, but also that's where the audience is. Yeah, I'm a little bit ambivalent about this too. I, I need to think about more what other effects it, it might have. I know one of the desires is that it might increase off-season activity because teams would have to concentrate their moves early in the season. I don't know whether that would turn out to be the case, but anyway, worth talking about. Eight 26-man rosters, so you'd have an extra player on every team, but September rosters would be limited to 28 instead of 40, and the non-September rosters could have only 12 pitchers at maximum. Yeah, so again, kind of three proposals in one. Anyway, highest support, 77% of people say, yeah, Yeah. bring on the roster limits with a passion rating of 3.5. That is the second highest so far behind only the universal V8. People are in support. By expanding the rosters, you create 30 more jobs. By limiting pitchers, you, I mean, if you have the three batter minimum in there as well, then you kind of take care of that. And yeah, September rosters have gotten out of control. People have wanted to fix that for a long time. That should be Mm -hmm. addressed. I know that it, it would kind of, it would be bad because you would have fewer players getting cups of coffee if your players getting their just brief looks at the major leagues but you know you'd also be creating 30 new jobs so on balance i think it would be good yeah i i agree i, I kind of like all parts of this one some more than others but this makes sense to me and number nine studying the mound specifically its height but maybe also its location and distance from the plate with an eye toward changing one or both of those things yeah i should also say because i forgot to say regarding the previous proposal i don't know what they would do uh, about the other kind of two-way players shohei Otani, right Matt Davis, <laughs> how do you define those guys yeah. yeah there's some chatter that they could actually prohibit position players from pitching except for in the in extra innings which would huh. uh, turn around a current uh current trend within the yeah. game but again there is Shohei Otani. Anyway, something to keep an eye on. Maybe there would be exceptions, carve-outs, just like with two-sport athletes. Okay, mound height. So when I pulled, all I was aware of was studying mound height, but then Jason Stark said they're also thinking about moving the mound back, which is something mm-hmm. you've written about, something we've yeah. talked about, something I like the idea of. Anyway, yeah. uh, when I pulled the audience, this was just about studying mound height with the possibility of lowering the mound. support. You might notice that is eight supported proposals in a row, eight out of nine, mound height. So 67% uh, support with 3.2 passion rating. Not a high passion rating, all things considered, but still people not opposed to a study because who could be opposed to a study? Right, yeah. I'll link to my article again. I really would prefer to move the mound back instead of lowering it. I think it would just be very effective. I think it makes total sense. I mean, players today are Riley O'Brien sized, not Johnny O'Brien sized, (laughs) so they're releasing the ball closer to the plate so we should move the mound farther from the plate and i just i think it would be less intrusive there shouldn't be anything invile 
available about 60 feet, 6 inches. I know there's more precedent for changing the mound's height than its location, but still, I think I actually prefer it. But obviously, studying it, we can study just about anything. All right, and 10th and last, an extra inning adjustment. By far the least support of any of the proposals. 35% of the audience said, yeah, sure, go for it. I should say that the proposal, as it is explained, is that spring tied spring training games would end after 10 innings. Who cares? But also, mm-hmm. in spring training and the All-Star game, they would test out that rule we talked about before about starting the inning with a runner on second base. So that is why people don't love it. And again, who cares what you do in spring training or the All-Star game, right? But pretty clearly, if you're going to test it in those circumstances, it's because you want to bring it to the regular season and the playoffs. I think that is why so many people are against it. And the passion, uh, the passion rating is 3.8, making it the second highest passion rating out of the 10 proposals behind only the universal dh so people feel pretty strongly about it and they are pretty strongly opposed so you can end yeah. spring training games whenever you want but you can put a runner on second base over my cold dead body <laughs> yeah i don't disagree i'm fine with ending exhibitions earlier but i worry about the slippery slope aspect of this i don't know i saw it happen in a minor league game and forgot that this was a thing and was very surprised to see a runner on second the first time i saw this and whatever the game ended it was fine it was still baseball but I don't love it. So I am uh, pretty much in line with the audience on most of these things. And it is interesting that at least the Fangraphs readers approve of most of these proposals. And that's good. I think a lot of these things are worth talking about, perhaps worth implementing. These aren't like banning the shift kind of ideas that we all come down against. These are genuinely good ideas, at least for the most part, that I think we should all be discussing and and we will continue to discuss on the show as they are either implemented or, or not implemented. But kudos to both sides, I suppose, for at least entertaining these ideas. I don't know whether on the whole they're more player friendly or team or league friendly. Certainly there are some in in either camp, but hopefully we will see some of this stuff become a part of baseball sometime soon. Yeah, I know you and I are both in favor of just making changes as it seems like they need to be done. No reason to just be stubborn and and glacial about changing baseball. So in favor of changes, in favor of well-reasoned and collectively bargained changes, and yeah, bring them on. Mm -hmm. And there is one actual change that has been made, which is that the disabled list is now no longer known as the disabled list. It has been renamed the injured list. still functions exactly the same. It's just a a different name for it and a a more accurate and potentially less insensitive name for it as well. So that's a a good change. (laughs) doesn't actually change how the DL works, but that's another proposal that is on the table too that we've talked about 10 days or 15 days or you just wrote a post about the 60-day DL becoming a year round thing so there are ways that baseball can change that would actually make the sport function better and hopefully some of them will become a part of it sometime soon have you mentioned that today is a team preview episode yes i have and great it is about I to begin yeah so we are going to take a quick break now and we'll be back with Corey sullivan to talk about the rockies followed by steven nesbitt to talk about the pirates i remember that now <laughs> we used to stroll on summer nights to a trail in the heights just to watch the twinkling lights in the valley so while the breezes hum that old familiar tune Rock me to sleep 
So we are joined now by Corey Sullivan, who you remember well if you are a Rockies fan, because he played for the Rockies from 2005 to 2008 before going on to play for the Mets and the Astros. And since 2014, he's been doing analysis of the team for AT&T Sportsnet. You'll see him in the pregame and postgame shows. Corey, welcome. Uh, Thanks for having me, guys. So I think the biggest and best and most heartening storyline about the Rockies last season and maybe this season too is the way that they've built this homegrown rotation that is really strong from top to bottom. We just marveled at the seasons that Kyle Freeland and Herman Marquez had last year. As someone who played for the team and and saw the the lack of pitching in past seasons, do you have a a sense of how they have managed to conquer Coors Field to a certain extent and come up with this just entirely homegrown rotation? Well, I think when you look back at the history of the Rockies organization, dating back to, you know, early on in the late 90s and early 2000s, you know, they were trying to find the formula for what worked at Coors Field. And they've gone through the gauntlet. We've seen... You know, sinker ball guys like an Aaron Cook or a Jason Jennings. Then we saw the power arm of Ibaldo and the swing and miss stuff. We've seen them try piggybacking starters where they went to a four-man rotation and only 75 pitches. When I think the characteristic that was most needed was these guys are just competitors. They go out there on a daily basis. They don't think of course Field as a beast that they have to slay. They think of it as, I'm going to go out there and put the team in a position to win. And if I give up five runs over five innings, that's fine, because I'm going to guarantee that the team has an opportunity to win. And when you look at what those guys do, you know, Kyle does it a little differently than Herman does. He goes out, and he is going to make you uncomfortable. He's going to pitch in. He's going to use his cutter. He's going to use his changeup a little bit, where Herman's going to come at you with fastball, and he's going to be hyper-aggressive and make you hit in backwards counts. And again, that common theme to me for them is that they go out and compete every time out. I was curious, and this is this is just an opportunity to talk a little bit about the current Rockies, but also about your own history of playing with the Rockies. I, whenever, of course, you talk about the Rockies, you have to talk about Coors Field. We just talked about Coors Field a little bit. It is a unique ballpark within the Major League landscape. And I've always wondered, and I'll take this opportunity to ask you, of course, when you're hitting in Colorado, the ball moves less. It's just easier to get a ball to drop, easier to hit a home run, etc. But what what was your own playing experience of trying to hit on the road after having a home series or three in a row? Because clearly, when you look at the Rockies' background, their their road numbers are are quite a bit worse than you would expect. It seems like they get used to the pitching at elevation, and, and then the ball is different elsewhere. So what was it like to hit on the road, and, and then what was it like to, to play for a team after the fact and adjust to never having to hit in Coors Field at all? I think it's twofold for myself, being that I was not a spectacular hitter or even mediocre hitter, for me, it just became more about hunting the fastball because you were not going to go out on the road and see the same off-speed pitches. You were going to go out and see more 12-6 curveballs. You were going to see things that you didn't see at cores because of the comfort level of the visiting pitchers. And given that, there is a propensity to go out and swing early in counts, which hurts you sometimes when you go out on the road as the Rockies when you've got four or five guys in the lineup seeing two pitches per at-bat because the first fastball they get they go after. That's the thing that you guys talk about a little bit now, you know, and some of the other analytics guys, they kind of forget what it's like to go out on the road. But in talking with the guys like Todd or Tulo or Holiday, for them, it was important for them to go out. And even if they had a starter, let's say Jeff Francis was throwing his bullpen session, go out, watch him stand in, watch the break of the ball. 
Watch the things that you're not used to seeing so that your eyes can adjust more quickly. Again, though, it's so difficult when you get in that heat of the battle and you're seeing pitches that you haven't seen and the comfort's not necessarily there. And sometimes it takes, unfortunately, 10 at-bats when you're out on the road. That's that hangover that we always talk about where you've got to find a way to go up there and have good swings on the pitches you're used to hitting and putting them in play the way you want it. Another thing you know about from personal experience is playing the outfield at course Field and center field specifically, which you did well. And, and that's one of the big questions about this 2019 team. So two-parter here. First, who do you think ends up getting the bulk of the innings on the team at that position this year? And two, is that a, a unique challenge out there because of the size and maybe because of the way that the ball comes off the bat? It is very unique. And I think the... The best outfield I was ever a part of, ironically, involves two guys who weren't outfielders at the start of their career, but coming up through the minor leagues, myself, Matt Holliday, and Brad Hopp, we played so many games together in the minor leagues that we learned to work as a unit. And at Coors Field, that is really, really paramount. You've got to be able to know the angles you're going to take, whether you're the center fielder or the right fielder. They've got to be communicated because the gaps are what crush you there. And if you're giving up balls in the gaps, you're not necessarily running the risk of doubles. You're also running the risk of triples. And that's the carousel that we talk about on our broadcast is when that starts happening, it's really hard to get off the carousel. You've got to work together, whether it's Desmond in center, whether it's Charlie in center or David Dahl, they're all capable of playing center field, but they've got to have that open communication where let's say a right-handed hitters up. You've got John Gray on the mound, who's fastball slider, you know, majority of the time will pitch in your right fielder. He's probably going to play a little more shallow, and he's going to have the inside angle to the center fielder. When you talk like that and you communicate like that, you play a lot better defense in the outfield. And for myself, having Matt and having Brad, I knew what they were capable of. You have to know that because you can't ask them to do more than they're capable of, and you've got to be able to pick up where they can. You know, I just had to throw this in there because I was curious. Uh, it turns out when you were a member of the Rockies between 2005 and 2008, you actually uh, you slugged 383 at home and you slugged 397 on the road. So you actually sort of broke all the rules as a Rocky, which is uh, <laughs> I didn't think that was even possible. But anyway, this is not about Corey Sullivan's <laughs> previous career a decade ago. We're talking about the current Rockies, and and one of one of the big questions uh, moving forward because. Uh, the Rockies, of course, are trying to keep up with the Dodgers. They were right there with them last season. They made the playoffs, of course, the season before. But right now, I think if you look at the projections, the, the Rockies are projected to be a, a decent margin behind the Dodgers in first place in the National League West. And one of the big questions is going to be David Dahl and whether or not David Dahl is ready to take over as an everyday player. We know, of course, he's been a top prospect. He's fought with a number of injuries. There's a, a stress fracture in his rib cage has just knocked him out for a long time. There's been a whole laundry list of problems that Dahl has faced, but at this point, it seems like he is lined up to get regular playing time, and I guess the long and short of it is, how much do you expect from David Dahl in 2019? I honestly expect a lot. I think we've seen in small sample sizes the potential of his ability, and to me, this is that time to take that major step. Spilly, who you guys know, Ryan Spilborgs, he always talks about when you first get to the major leagues, you're trying to find that identity. And when you finally start believing that you belong, that's when your potential comes out. And I think for David, 2017, when he missed out with the stress fracture, that was bizarre. I think he thought he belonged. Then starting 18 in the minor leagues as well with a foot fracture again, then coming back to the big leagues. This is that step that he needs to realize I belong in the major leagues. And to quote Bull Durham, announce his presence with authority. To me, 
he's one of the more dynamic players. He's that speed power combo, a lot like Trevor Story. And when you add that to the mix with Nolan and Charlie and Daniel Murphy, if he clicks and clicks like he can, their offense, which wasn't as strong as it could have been last year, can be much more dangerous. And I do like the speed aspect. I think that's something this team's going to have that's a little bit different. Yeah, I don't want to keep harping on the park effects, but as you mentioned, the offense was not really the strength of last year's team. It was kind of a a pitching and defense team, and yet I think a lot of people nationally still sort of think that the Rockies can hit even when they don't have a a strong team by their standards just because you know they will still score runs, and if you don't do the park adjustments, then it looks like they're at least pretty competent offensively. So I don't know. When you are on a broadcast, for instance, and you're talking to the local audience, do you try to convey that and, and show them, hey, this is what happens when you look at these stats after you adjust for course field? Or is it just understood at this point? Because I, I still think it's a, a misconception from a lot of people outside Colorado. I think it's definitely a misconception on the national level. And I think last year it taught myself how unimportant, I guess, you know, hitting can be because we've always looked at course field as this great place to hit. And there's always been these great hitters here, batting champion after batting champion after batting champion. The first six of the weeks of the season last year, the team was winning and they're, uh, this is ballpark batting average. I think they were hitting around 220 and with runners in scoring position, they were hitting like 150 or lower. And it taught me that, you know what, you really can win with quality pitching at Coors Field. And what the starters were able to do was absolutely incredible. So I was uh, I was wondering the the Rockies before last year they were able to sign Charlie Blackman to a, a long term extension. They are it seems like at least based on reports they are in the process of of trying to get a, a long term extension agreed to with with Nolan Arenado. We have seen them they continue to make regular use of of Ian Desmond. I was a little surprised as well behind the plate they didn't go out and and get a better catcher. It, it seems like and maybe this is over reading into it, but it seems like at least organizationally the Rockies are maybe one of the more loyal franchises in Major League Baseball, loyal to the players that they that they already have and and loyal some might argue to a fault. So as you as you sit here, you look at the end of the offseason, assuming the Rockies aren't going to go out and sign Manny Machado or or Bryce Harper, how do you evaluate the offseason they've had? I don't know whether they're actually going to find terms with Nolan Arenado. Do you think that they've they've done well to mostly keep the players that they already had, adding Daniel Murphy, or do you do you think that there were maybe missed opportunities because perhaps they just didn't want to replace someone they already had in house? I think when you look back at 2018, obviously, you know, the starting rotation performed well. The bullpen severely underperformed. So the expectation is for the bullpen to, to just do status quo. What, the, what they had done previously as individuals and then as a whole, obviously, they'll perform better. The glaring issue to me was that offense. And I think a lot of people, especially in Colorado, have sat and said, well, DJ and Daniel Murphy, we're looking now at the same contract virtually. Which guy do you have? Well, you, I played with Daniel Murphy in 2009 with the Mets, his rookie season, and bat to ball, I'm not sure there's a better guy in Major League Baseball, and I know how good DJ had been as well. Having the ability to have a middle-of-the-bat impact bat that is really consistent to me, I think that will be a game-changer. I think having the ability to protect Nolan, I mean, you're two through five can basically be just about anybody, whether Charlie hits in the middle of the order or not. And you had to make an improvement there and having Daniel be able to be that rock with what he's been able to do over the 10 years of his career, I think is really important. There's been a pretty dramatic disparity in the past few years. If you look at the 
production that the Rockies have gotten from homegrown players versus free agents they've signed. And even when they have spent money, a lot of those investments just have not panned out. Obviously, Ian Desmond is the most obvious example, but you know, you can kind of go down the list and Jake McGee and Mike Dunn. There are just a, a lot of places where they've spent money on free agents that they just haven't gotten a whole lot of production out of compared to the farm system where they've been one of the most productive teams in baseball recently. So is there any reason for that that you see that they have been so much better at getting wins from one way but not from the other? Well, no, I think when you're introducing players from outside the system to Coors Field, there's always a little bit of a learning curve. And I think with Mike, Mike Dunn had been dealing with some injuries that, you know, bit him a little bit here and there, whether it was knee or the shoulder. And I think for him, he's had those problems fixed. They're behind him. Hopefully this will be a solid year. And for Jake, I'll also, you know, him trying to adapt from that one pitch mentality where he, in Tampa, he was throwing, you know, fastball 95, 96% of the time that he also had a little bit of a knee issue, tried to introduce him a little bit of a slow curveball. It's one of those things where sometimes it's paralysis by analysis. You overthink it. Stick with what got you to the dance, right? And I think Jake learned a lot last year as well. And for him, it'll be an important thing. I think the next guy is Brian Shaw. Again, with Brian and what he was able to do with Cleveland year over year over year, I think his learning curve was last year and he got away from himself. And I think this year it'll be important for him to get back to what what got him to the dance. I'm going to do the annoying thing where I read a, a series of numbers on a podcast. It's going to be six numbers, and I apologize, everybody, in advance. I'm going to read uh, Herman Marquez's, uh, from last season, his month-by-month strikeout rates. Okay. Uh, starting in April, 21%, 21%, 27%, 37%, 33%. By the end of the season, Herman Marquez's strikeouts were through the roof. He also, by the way, trimmed his first half walk rate almost in half, and it's always more complex than you might see written about or or as alleged, but over the course of the season, Herman Marquez started to feature a brand new slider, and it seemed to make all the difference, and by the end of the season, he was legitimately not just pitching well for a Rockies pitcher, but pitching like one of the very best starting pitchers in Major League Baseball, so you've seen that slider up close and personal, you've seen his stuff in person. Uh, how much do you believe in Herman Marquez's second half? And do you think that he's going to go into 2019 as a national Cy Young candidate? I do. I, I think, and I, I know people downplay Kyle Freeland and, and what his ability is, but I think what those two do to push each other is very, very valuable. And it's very important to what's made Herman so successful. Introducing that slider, I equate it to Clayton Kershaw when he introduced his. I really do. I think he became a whole different pitcher when he went from fastball curveball to fastball curveball slider. It took a little bit for Herman to learn how to harness it, where to start it, where he needed to throw it to right-handed hitters or to left-handed hitters. But for him, it added so much more confidence where, you know what, I can be hyper-aggressive with my fastball, get you down 0-1 in the count. And we all know how important 0-1 is. When you get a, b- a ball in the next count, 1-1, the count can swing. It's almost 200 points from batter's favor to pitcher's favor when it goes to 1-2 versus 2-1. And Herman was really incredible in that count. And when you're in a defensive count against a guy like Herman, who's got a fastball that can run up there at 100, his snapdragon curveball that he can throw anywhere from 82 to 88 miles an hour, and then the slider that you have to think about, you're behind the eight ball. You're you're in a defensive position, and that's when those strikeouts happen. You start expanding the strike zone. And Herman has become really good at getting strikes in the zone with those pitches so that he can then get chases outside the strike zone. And I think that's what led to that strikeout 
rate increasing so much late in the season. And I look for him to do the exact same thing this year. It's one of the reasons that the Rockies weren't great offensively last year is that their stalwart from 2017, Charlie Blackman, after signing an extension, he went from MVP caliber player to maybe above average player just took a a big hit offensively and if you look at the defensive stats they went way way south and he may be playing more in the corner than in center we saw some of those issues in the playoffs last year is there a realistic expectation of a, a bounce back there or is it just hey he's you know about to be 33 this year and this is sort of what happens eventually well, I, I hate to be cliche and I hate to be the normal, you know, broadcaster who covers a player and says, I expect big things from Charlie and he's one of the hardest workers, but that really is who Charlie Blackman is. I think when you look at games played over the last few years, you begin to understand the toll that it's taken on his body. Playing center field at Coors Field, not just running the hundred yards out to center field and the hundred yards back, but having to go get the ball in the gap. There's wear and tear on the body and on the mind that people don't see. And I think last year, that was kind of that burden for Charlie was I had this huge year. I started off a little slow. I'm going to press a little bit. And, you know, physically and mentally, I'm just exhausted. I am just beat down. And I think going into this offseason, my guess would be that Charlie pushed himself as hard when he was working out, but he also understood that I need downtime to let my body recover. So for Charlie, moving out of center field, if he does, I think it will give him a huge break on what he has to do physically on defensing games, which will help him offensively. In a lot of ways, if you want to uh, look at things kind of simplistically, if you saw them on a split screen, you might think that Noah Syndergaard and John Gray are the same pitcher, but where Noah Syndergaard's coming off a pretty successful season, John Gray is coming off a year where he still had the same power stuff as always, but his numbers kind of bounced around. Ben wrote at one point, Gray just had a really strange first half where his ERA was bad, but all his other numbers were good. He was demoted to the minors, came back, seemed to make some positive adjustments, but his second half numbers, let's just say he uh, he pitched to a lot more contact and he didn't finish the season quite as, as strikeout dominant, at least as he's seemed in the past. So... Uh, understanding again, you know, you're a you're a broadcaster who covers these players all the time, and you've you've been up close with with John Gray. And do you do you see more of a finished, polished product in in 2019? What did you see from John Gray down the stretch last year that might make you feel optimistic or or pessimistic about what he's going to do in the season ahead? Well, I, I think it, it's easy to be both for John. It's easy to be optimistic because we see the potential. We see some of the, you know, uh, advanced statistics that say he wasn't as bad as the traditional statistics say. But for me, for John, I think physically he was much lighter at the end of the season. It looked like he had lost a lot of weight. I'm sure, I mean, having played in the big leagues and I would go to spring training at 190 pounds and the season would roll around. I was 160 pounds. Stress can get to you. And I think the stress of the, of, of the non-successful outings was really getting to him. But the biggest thing for John is to to get out of his own way mentally, to just go out there and attack hitters. And, you know, in-game adjustments for John sometimes are what really gets to him. You, teams really like to go out and, and try and jump him on fastballs so that he doesn't get to his curveball. And when he gets some traffic out there, that gets him in trouble. For me, for John, just getting out there, being aggressive, focusing on the game plan, that he sets forth, whether it's fastball slider using the curveball a little bit here and there. Remember what got him there. And that's that fastball slider combination. While the other two pitches that he uses are ancillary and you can mix them in just to get hitters off balance. You've got to be aggressive with the two you got and you can't overthink it. John at times last year 
got in his own way a little bit mentally. And I think that's where Bud is really going to help him understand, listen, watch Kyle, watch Herman, watch the way these guys go out and the mentality they pitch with. And for John, that's that next big step. We've been talking about the major league roster. We haven't talked much about the farm system, but I wanted to ask you about Brendan Rodgers, who, depending on the source, is a top 10, top 20 prospect in all of baseball this year, and he made it up to AAA last season, so presumably he's not too far away. He has played a little bit of every infield position. Of course, you've got Trevor Story at short. You've got Arnado at third. You have Garrett Hampson, who just made it to the majors briefly last year, and he's 24. So is Rodgers going to break through it at some point this season? And if so, where? I think Brendan Rodgers will definitely be seen in a Rockies uniform this year. Uh, I think it would take a massive spring training effort for that to happen out of spring. I think he's got some steps that he needs to finish. I think it's really important that guys take that last step, especially guys of his caliber, just for him to finish off any of the question marks that he might have. And, you know, when you're talking about guys like Hampson, that speed aspect, he's still 50-plus bases in the minor leagues. I really like him extending that lineup when he's in there. I think he showed poise. I think he showed maturity at the big league level. I think you've also got to talk a little bit about Ryan McMahon and the gap-to-gap power that he can bring playing a little bit of second base. It It's funny to me, having been through the down times of the Rockies and now this really heavy plethora of young talent. I mean, we're talking about a Rockies team that made the playoffs two years in a row, and they have the potential to easily do it again a third year in a row. It goes to show you how well Jeff Breidich and his front office have done it, developing this talent and creating this pool of players together. And when Brendan Rodgers gets to the big leagues, I think you're going to see the potential. I, it's, I was with Todd Helton. I was with Tulo. You know, I missed a ball. I got, I got the end of a ball though, but they've always had these names that are there. And whether it's Trevor Story now and Nolan or Brendan Rodgers and Charlie Blackman, it's impressive what these guys have done to put this team and this organization in this position. Yeah, and another guy who falls into that prospect category or did is Raimel Tapia. Now, he is 25. He hasn't hit at the big league level yet. He spent most of last year in AAA, and it seems like he's ticketed for a bench role at the big league level again this year. Is there still hope that things are going to click, that those unconventional mechanics are going to come together, or is the, the luster sort of fading? I think there's still hope. I think for Raimel... The biggest thing is that mental step of, I'm a big leaguer. I think when he gets to the major leagues, he steps outside himself and tries to do a little bit too much. That's very common for younger players when they get to the big leagues is, I want to make an immediate impact. And for Rymel, having the opportunity to come off the bench, I actually think will really, really help him because he'll have the opportunity, whether it's a Mark Reynolds, who obviously the Rockies just signed if he makes the bench, to help him understand, be the player you are, be the player that got you here. Don't try and do too much. Go out there, have a quality of bat, get on base, wreak absolute havoc out there, and that's who you're going to be now. Once he gets an opportunity to play every day, you'll get to see the skill sets that we've seen in the minor leagues and the way he's been able to put the ball in play and put it in play hard. That takes consistent at-bats. That's never easy when you're coming off the bench to have those consistent at-bats every single time out. But for Rymel, I think there's always, I mean, there's hope he's got the skill set that that plays at the major league level he's just got to gain that confidence as well all right so we end each of these segments by forcing our guest to make a a win total prediction for the coming season now the rockies are coming off a 91 win year they made it to the nlds they were maybe not 
quite that great if you look at some of the underlying metrics, but they've obviously had a run of success here and they have a foundation of young talent. Didn't do a, a ton over the offseason aside from adding Daniel Murphy to, to play first base, which you'd, you'd think there's some reason to be optimistic about a contact hitter like that at Coors Field. So give us your outlook and expectation for uh, Rockies wins wise this year. I will only do so if afterwards you guys will as well. <laughs> All right. I that's guess not, that's no, no, no. Hey, hold on. Uh, that's not how this works. <laughs> no. Only you get put on the dangerous spot. Dangerous precedent to to set there because then all our guests will ask us to do it. But it is, it's fair, no. I guess. Uh, I am quite the risk taker. Last year, I said they needed to win 92 games to win the division. I thought they would do it. They obviously came up 163, one game short. I'm sticking with it. I'm going to say they win 92 games. Wow. All right. It's optimistic. And I know that that is super aggressive, but I, am, <laughs> I, I, I know that this team can do it. I know that they play incredibly well together. They play for each other and they've overachieved the last two years. Every, every year, the projections are 81, 82 wins. I think this year it's 85. I still think they get over the 90 mark and this year they get over the hump and get to 92, which would be a franchise record. Ben, you're going to do it. <laughs> Well, I, I guess I should. We agreed to, right? Oh, it's only fair. I, I mean, I, yeah. Looking at the the projections right now on on Fangraphs, it looks like they're at eighty two before one of the other projection systems is folded in. And I guess I'll I'll give them a little credit for having exceeded that, and and maybe they will uh, be willing to make some mid season moves. So I don't know. I guess I, I'll go eighty four. I'm going to go 86 and also say that I will not offer any more predictions for any other team. This will not set a precedent. This is an exception. <laughs> <laughs> All I appreciate right, well, you guys going out on the limb <laughs> Yeah, well we appreciate you doing that too Thank you very much Corey and, and Rockies fans can find him and follow him All season long on the pregame and postgame Thanks Corey Alright, thanks guys, thanks Jeff, thanks Ben Alright, so we will take one more quick break And we'll be right back with Stephen J. Nesbitt Of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette To talk about the Pittsburgh Pirates So we are joined now by Stephen J. Nesbitt, who covers Pittsburgh sports for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Stephen, it's probably a good thing that you don't cover the Pirates exclusively, because <laughs> I don't know how you could have gotten through a whole offseason. Yeah, the, this city, thankfully, has a whole lot else going on. Uh, go see the Steelers. <laughs> they have a, they have their own business going on. So the Pirates, they don't, yeah, they don't, when I was on the beat for three years, they, they really don't keep you too busy during the offseason. There would be the occasional... John Jaso signing when when you're visiting family or you know the rare minor league free agent they bring in but typically during the off season they don't they don't keep you too too busy no and this off season was was it exclusively minor league free agents should we review what the pirates actually did because that won't take very long there are a lot of names that they added and almost all of them are minor league free agents. <laughs> 
What is the mood now, I guess, with the team? Because they, they of course, have been inactive over the, over the winter, which is not surprising. But it was last year they decided to go big. They traded for Chris Archer. They went a little less big. They traded for Keon Aquila. So you could say that the Pirates have acted aggressively. They've tried to make sort of win now and win medium-term moves. But what is the sense about how that's gone? I know it's still early, but how it's what's the mood around those two moves? Yeah, I think for fans, it seems like those two moves don't agree in that you're, you're willing to ship out two of your really, uh, I guess, formerly elite prospects in Austin Meadows and Tyler Glassdown, and even Shane Baz, who a first-round pick, who might be good, who knows, at, at this point. So you're willing to do that to bring in Chris Archer, but then the offseason comes and you see your payroll plummet to, to south of $70 million and uh, really bringing in no one of consequence other than people generally like the, the Lonnie Chisenhall ad. He can be the right fielder while Gregory Polanco is recovering from, from his injuries. And you bring in, you know, Jordan Lyle to, uh, to maybe be that fifth starter. You bring back Jung Ho Gung, uh, on a one year deal. Uh, again, they're, they're doing what the Pirates typically do in the offseason, which is take a flyer on a number of guys who you can buy low on one year deals and see if they pay off. Uh, as a fan base, that's not exciting whatsoever, especially when you see the moves that even the Reds are making, but certainly the Cardinals and the Brewers. They're not playing the same game right now. And, and that's, that really is the philosophy of, of the Pirates is if they're going to add and be aggressive, they're going to do it at the trade deadline, not in the offseason. And, uh, while I think that makes sense in a lot of ways, you sort of see what, what cards you have before you, uh, push all your chips in, I guess. It, it's not something that's going to sell well to the fan base or play well, even sometimes, uh, in the, in the clubhouse. And I think that's sort of the, the juggling game, the juggling act that Neil Huntington and, and his, front office have to deal with is the fact that these aren't popular moves. Doing nothing is rarely a popular move. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, this is not the first time that the Pirates have not spent when people wanted them to spend. And there are a lot of other teams this offseason that people are wondering, why aren't they going over this level? Why aren't they signing this free agent? But it just seems like the Pirates are in one of the most egregious positions because they're in this competitive division where everyone else seemingly is trying to upgrade. And they're not terrible. I mean, they may not have a, a whole lot of stars or, or big name players, but as evidenced by the fact that we're doing this preview fairly early in the series and, and they're kind of in the middle of the pack in, in the projections, they are in a place where you could dream on them being competitive if they did add a few pieces. And so what has ownership said, if anything, and how much anger is there among Pirates fans? Yeah, I mean that's the interesting part is, is it's it's hard to hard to uh, or easy to forget sometimes that this is a winning team last year. They dumped Derek Cole and and Andrew McCutcheon and, and got guys who in general didn't do a ton to help them last year. They may help down the road, but this is a there was probably a year that they were going to be just rebuilding or bridging or however you want to say it. And they turned into a pretty good ball club. Now the the problem is they're in a in a good division and pretty good's not going to not going to get you anywhere near the wild card in a year like last year. And so ownership doesn't really say much in this city. Bob Nutting speaks once a year at spring training and that has yet to occur and doesn't usually say a whole lot. Just, uh, doesn't, doesn't get, doesn't get particular about how much money they can spend, where, where their BAM tech money is going. You saw last year the players union filed a grievance against the Pirates and a couple other teams saying essentially you're not spending the money you're getting. And they got through that all right. And then you make a move like Chris Archer and, and the fan base starts to maybe try to rethink what it thinks of you for a moment. They were the biggest trade they've made in, in honestly, uh, decades. And then you come to the offseason and, and 
you see where the payroll goes now. You see where they have been. And you have people, uh, you know, plenty of people have said, and I'm sure both of you have as well, like, you know, they have the payroll to go get Manny Machado if they want to. But we all know it's the least likely thing in the world. Just because they have been at 110 before doesn't mean they're willing to start the season there. And so uh, it's pretty outrageous. I think we can all agree where their payroll is now. Their argument would just be that, well, we have a ton of young players who are cheap still, and we don't want to make a risky, huge cost upgrade in the offseason. We'd rather see what we have first and then and then sort of go from there and add during the season. And, and maybe you'll be surprised just how much we can add. But at this point, um, I think fans would love to see some winning baseball in April and May and June and then go go even further in if you can at the trade deadline. Right. Yeah, that seems almost like a backwards argument. We have all these young, cheap players. That's a, a reason that you should be able to spend on someone you would think. Yeah, no, this is exactly the time. There's been a ton of smart analysis out there this year that this is this is the time to go in on a Manny Machado if you're ever going to do it because you have a window right now with guys like Jamison Tyone with even your your outfielders of Gregory Polanco, Starling Marte, you have Josh Bell, you have Colin Moran, these guys who uh, could turn into really Joe Musgrove's another good one, uh, Trevor Williams. You have there for a few years now, but if you don't really cash in things now, you're going to be left with maybe one or two years of those guys in their prime and still affordable to keep them all on the roster at the same time. And you don't want to see what happened with this last core with the Garrett Cole and, and Neil Walker and, and Andrew McCutcheon. Those guys are, are gone now and, and the window closed way sooner than you thought it would. And they get more expensive than the Pirates would like uh, pretty quickly, even if you have them in the majors for six and, and sometimes more years. And so I do think this is a time when, when uh, if you're going to go for it, do it now so you have three, four years with you know some a really really strong and deep core rather than just trying to have your mission be to be a winning club every year and uh and never you know never tank and never never go for the number one pick like they were for for a long time unintentionally and and uh, really shoot to be a, a favorite rather than just somebody in the conversation as you mentioned last the last year the pirates were a winning team that's why they traded for archer that's why they traded for kayla uh, because they thought that not only could they get those players and help them in the short-term future, but also they could help them in the very short-term future, maybe make a playoff run. That's not how it happened, but, you know, the Pirates did to have a season as sort of a moderate success last year. Still, they finished in fourth place, but they're a rare team above 500. Uh, but now you have this offseason, where, as we've discussed, the Pirates have done very little, and the Reds of all teams have sort of pushed in. They even seem to have made a play for JT Aromoto, because the Reds seem to really want to get back into the hunt. So I understand that even in a vacuum, Maybe the, the Pirates' messaging isn't always a fan favorite, but maybe this is a redundant question because we've already been talking about this, but how do the Pirates sell their plan in an offseason in which the Reds are like, okay, we're going we're gonna to kind of go for it. We're going to make a play and try to be more competitive. Yeah, I think that the Pirates would do is they'd say, well, well, you can take the Reds, you can take the Phillies and what they're doing right now, but you'd also have to consider what they've done the last five years. And there's been some pretty ugly baseball happening and you, you have your you know, your franchise, former stars coming out and saying, you know, it's time for winning baseball to come back to Cincinnati. It's time for good baseball to come back to Philly. And the Pirates will say, well, we've been in the conversation every year. Now we, we won 98 games and we, we couldn't uh, get through the wild card with the Cubs. But those three years were great. The problem is those three years are, are drifting into the distance further and further. And you need to show that you are going to get back to that level and you can compete within the division. And when things, I'm getting away from what they would say, but this is what I would say. 
when, when the when the division continues to stock up and people will argue that the Cubs aren't stocking up, but they don't need to. They're in a much better position than the Pirates are to begin with. And so the Pirates, I think, would, would just caution fans to look at the past few years and see how they've built, which is, of course, from within, from the draft, from their own development system. But if they're going to add, it comes at the trade deadline, and it comes usually with uh, trading one or two players who are expiring contracts. This year it could look like uh, Corey Dickerson or Jung Ho Gung if he has a nice year. You have uh, Cervelli, of course. Those guys will go if the team is terrible. Now, if the team's in contention, the Pirates have shown we're willing to keep those guys, not get anything back for them before they hit free agency, and then maybe we'll trade for, for an archer and we'll do some adding. The thing is they, they typically, when they add, they don't go all in, but they do enough to give the team a fighting chance, which is what you've seen the last few years where at the deadline, they technically are still alive. And so I think they do enough in, in trades to keep the team afloat without cashing everything in, which was why it was so rare that they'd go for Archer and spend so much capital in, in prospects to do so. And it didn't work out last year, but the only reason they were willing to do it was because of how many years they're going to keep Kella, keep Chris Archer and keep this window open for the next three, four years before these guys get too expensive and they start going out to free agency and they're really out of the Pirates' price range. Yeah, and so everything really depends on Archer. They they really need him to be the guy that they gave up all those players for if they're going to have any hope of really being in a competitive position this year. He had a minor surgery not too long ago and is expected to be recovered from that. What's the level of optimism that Archer can actually be what the Pirates saw when they acquired him? Because there is kind of a worrisome pattern in his recent stats. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It, he is, the, in a lot of ways, the linchpin of the season. You, you have a really promising starting rotation, very young as well, where uh, they traded Ivan Nova, another, another move that, that is sort of subtracting a little without, without really tanking the team. He's a, he's a capable fifth starter, of course, but not a whole lot more than that at this point. But you need Chris Archer to be pretty close to ace material alongside Jamison Tyone and Trevor Williams, who, who had really, really, really strong second halves. And, and, uh, we'll look to do the same, of course, this year. Chris Archer had a good September, but he has been wildly inconsistent the last few years. The Pirates decided it was worth it based on his, you know, his, his track record that he's going to bounce back. They hope that race years can, can get with him and really fix some of what's going on. But this is a guy who had some of the best stuff in the game and, and he really hasn't shown it in, in the last few years. So they need him to bounce back and, and lead that rotation right alongside Tyone. And if he can, I mean, this is a pretty, pretty dependable top four, at least if you toss in Joe Musgrove is at four. And then for, for the number five, who knows where they go? They could be Lyles. It could be who pitched a lot in relief last year and is probably uh, better suited there. Or they could do Nick Kingham, who was somewhat dependable at times last year, but you probably don't want him in a playoff hunt. Stephen Brault could be, or they could bullpen, which they've, they've considered a little bit. So a lot of that depends on how good Archer is. I think they can be in. You know, the division conversation are pretty close to it if those top three, top four starters uh, pitch anywhere as near as they're, they're capable. I don't think I need to tell anyone on this podcast that while this offseason hasn't been popular with Pirates fans, last offseason was even less popular with Pirates fans. That was the offseason in which they traded Garrett Cole. And also, of course, they traded contract year Andrew McCutcheon. And, and in return for McCutcheon from the Giants, they got prospect Brian Reynolds, who went on to have a pretty good season in AA and got some international money. And they also got a big league reliever in Kyle Crick. And 
if you look at Crick, not he's always had stuff. It's never really been a question about his stuff, but he was a, a good reliever last year at a mid-two ZRA. He got better as the season wore on. Yeah, he seems like he was able to get his walks under control. Now that it's a year after the fact, how is that trade viewed? Is it still, is it a failure to have lost Andrew McCutcheon under any circumstances? Or have people started to come around to the fact that, okay, we were going to lose McCutcheon anyway, and we actually seem to have gotten one or two pretty good players in return? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't think anyone's too beat up about it at this point. I mean, certainly they would have loved it if he would have come back on a, a for your $10 million deal in free agency. Like, they'd love to have him back, but they understand Kutch isn't who Kutch was in, in 2013, 2014, 2015, when he was a, you know, perennial MVP candidate. And so I, I think people get it now, and they're used to having these these guys. And, and yeah, the return worked out. It wasn't something that was going to make or break their, their season last year. You know, having him wouldn't have saved anything. He wasn't terribly impressive with the Giants or, or the Yankees, and we'll see how he is in Philadelphia this year, but Crick, uh, like you said, turned into a really solid uh, back of the rotation candidate. They That's a really bright spot for them where they have certainly Felipe Vasquez as closer, formerly Rivero, and then they have Crick, uh, Crick as their eighth inning man. They have they had a good seventh inning man in uh, Edgar Santana, who is a, a rookie, a young guy, but then he had Tommy John, as did Chad Cool. They'll both be out this year. Uh, and so they filled in with Keone Kella from, from the Rangers. So I think that's going to be a bright spot and for a team that had had lost out on having that you know dependable back of the rotation mix of you know Jared Hughes, Tony Watson, Mark Melanson, uh this is a pretty good follow-up cast. So I think people, you know, down the road will like what they got for McCutcheon, particularly because McCutcheon hasn't returned to, to MVP form since he left. Well, is there anyone else who falls into the category of, okay, they didn't sign someone, they didn't spend, but player X is poised to bounce back or player Y in AAA is uh, about to hit the scene and do well or player Z on the major league roster has been kind of under the radar but has a real chance to make major steps this year? Yeah, yeah, I'll give you a couple. The, the first one, the guy who the next one up really is going to be Mitch Keller, who is who is seen as one of the one of the brighter prospects in baseball. Uh, really good right-handed pitcher has has really power stuff. He's at AAA, and he really when he got there last year, he's still really young. He was blown up his first couple of starts there uh, after really owning the the low minors pretty easily. Went to the Futures game and and uh, sort of uh, looked like he got back to his roots a little bit with uh, with just owning his fastball and and came back to have a nice finish of the season. And they think he could be ready by midseason. Of course, with, with the Pirates, they won't bring him up any earlier than midseason. They'll they'll let this Jordan Lyles experiment go on until they truly need him. But he's a, he's going to be an exciting one to watch because they think he really could be that next guy up. Of course, with the Pirates, the trouble is that next guy up isn't always ready when you when you need him to be. You saw that with Tyone, of course, with the, with the Tommy John and then hernia surgeries. You saw it with Tyler Glass now, who they traded before. He blossomed, and they knew they were doing that, but they sort of felt they had to. And, and uh, you see it, of course, with position player prospects who are just not ready when you call on them, like Kevin Newman, who is uh, a, a former first-round pick, who is going to be in a timeshare at shortstop, looks like, with, with Eric Gonzalez, but really didn't show well last year. So another guy that I would look at and will be really interesting is Jung Ho Gung. They bring him back on, on a minor league deal. Of course, this guy has a pretty wild story where he, he comes to them after uh, just tremendous success in, in the Korean League a few years ago and two seasons is really well 
despite breaking his, his leg at one point and covering second on a double play, but is a guy who has power, who can hit for average, and also has, he just showed tremendous, uh, sort of that, <laughs> the unspoken clutch gene. It's late in, late in games, he could, he could rake and you put him near McCutcheon in that lineup and he was, he was pretty, uh, pretty impressive. Now, of course, he gets, he has several DUIs on his record back in Korea. He isn't allowed back into the U.S., doesn't have a visa for the most of last year. He finally gets in the middle of the year, goes to AAA, comes up to the majors and did all right. He did, he did all right enough that the Pirates said, you know, we'd like to bring you back if we can. So they didn't, I believe it was they didn't tender a contract, but then they brought him back on a minor league deal and, and he's going to be, I think it was a major league deal, actually. Sorry about that. He's going to be in a timeshare with Colin Moran at, at third base, uh, who really, Moran underperformed pretty, pretty mightily last year. They had, you know, high praises early on and, and they think there's a lot more power in that bat. They think there's better defense there at third base. So it'll be interesting to see if Gung really forces the issue at third base or if, you know, he's getting older and he has not had a ton of major league experience in the last few years because of his legal troubles and his injuries. So it'll be interesting to see how quickly he picks things up. Uh, and then the last one I'll give you is I think, uh, Josh Bell is, is pretty crucial to what they're doing here at first base after having really a, a really huge rookie year, first full season. Then last year was a guy that, that disappointed pretty, pretty mightily. He, he had 12 homers where I think the previous year he had 25 plus. And so they think there's more power in that bat as well. And, and we'll see because he's a guy who, they put a, a lot of money into as a, as a prospect, and and so far in the majors, it's been a little roller coaster. So that would be uh, my three or four guys I would, I would keep an eye on. Going back to Gung for a minute, in addition to his DUIs, he also had a sexual assault allegation against him for an incident that was supposed to have occurred in Chicago, and he keeps getting chances over and over. And you know, is this just a, a case of? The Pirates are not going to spend a lot, and they think this guy will be worth more than they pay him, and so they're just willing to give him a shot, even though he has this really kind of disturbing record? Or uh, do they think he's a, a different guy for some reason? Is there any basis hmm. for believing that? A little bit of yes to, to, to all of that. Uh, last winter, before he was able to get a visa, I went down to uh, the Dominican to write about him when he was in the Dominican Winter League, trying to basically show the Pirates that, yes, I can still play baseball at a high level, and he really didn't show it there. He ended up getting cut a few days before I got down to Santiago in the Dominican, and didn't speak to me for the story or anything like that, but he had gotten cut because he couldn't hit. He was losing weight. It was just a real real bad experience. And so I, I thought there was a good chance at that point that he never even gets back into into the U.S. and just goes back to the, the KBO. But it turns out he was able to get a visa through through some uh, a lot of effort from the team and through lawyers, immigration lawyers. So, but you're right. There's a ton in his past. The the, the situation in Chicago with the sexual assault allegation still, as far as I know, at the time of when I wrote that story, which is a few years out from from the allegation, is unresolved. They said it kind of went nowhere. And so, what he has on his record technically is three DUIs in Korea, and the Pirates, you know, has said as long as Major League Baseball clears him and will follow whatever they say, which they did. They put him through a, some sort of mandated treatment program. And and so I don't know if they, they think he's turned his life around. There are stories, uh, Rob Beer Temple wrote one for The Athletic about how in while well, in the Dominican, then Gung became a born-again Christian and has supposedly turned his life around. I can't speak to that personally. I don't know if he truly has, but he certainly has a checkered past. And the Pirates, I think, are just willing to say that at the, the Christ He's at right now. He's a huge, I mean, he's a potential for, for huge upside there because of his power. 
and it's something they need and they think uh he's, he's not a you know a present danger to people i suppose he's not driving or anything like that so you hope that you hope that's true but there there is a, a faction of the fan base that certainly didn't want him back and because he came up in september i think that people are a little used to it by now and they brought him up in a road series which is probably smart on their part and uh We'll see how that goes this year, but that tends to ha- tends to happen if a guy can hit and he brings, uh, you know, if he's a bonus for the team, then uh, the fans typically tend to get in line for better or for worse. Well, the last thing I guess we want to ask before we get to the uh, the hardest part is if there is a if there's one player on this team that still sort of has some star upside that that even seemed to be really tapping into it after an offseason of hard work last season. It was Gregory Polanco who just had the best offensive season of his career before succumbing to a pretty significant shoulder uh, injury that's uh, the recovery of which is going to keep him out for the first few months of this coming season. So understanding, of course, that no one's really going to know what Polanco is going to be when he returns because the shoulder surgeries are always a problem for hitters and it can take a while for the power to come back. What is the amount of optimism with regard to Polanco at this point? And, and what was it that, at least in your estimation, really seemed to make the difference last season as he tapped into power like he hadn't before? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's, uh, I mean, at this point, he's, he's 27, which is a little hard to believe because he was he was coming up at, at age 22 and and uh he's a ton of promise and he's he's shown it in flashes here and there but that the consistency hasn't hasn't been there. I think last year you saw him really start to get into a rhythm and almost felt like the the uh injury came at the worst time possible and the, the injury if you haven't seen it was entirely preventable. It was he's uh legging out a double and I think he was honestly I don't know what he was doing. It's a pretty hilarious looking slide. Uh I say hilarious even though he got injured. But he's able to laugh at it now too. He sort of goes in, uh, he's a six five dude and he just sort of leaps into the slide. He ends up twisting his knee a little bit and then crashing into his shoulder. It was just one of the ugliest slides you'll, you'll, you'll ever see. And he injured both his knee and his shoulder. Turns out the shoulder was a more serious one. He's out until probably May. So we'll see how long it takes till he can come in and replace Lonnie Chisenhall. But he had really hit his, hit his stride, uh, at the plate. And I think the thing he's always battled is, being able to shorten his swing. And it seems like a really simple thing to do, but it's something that he's worked with guys like David Ortiz on going back three, four years because he's such a big guy, long levers, as the Pirates like to say. And uh, his swing can be so long and looping like a, like a Nike swoosh that the inside fastball he could, couldn't catch up to. Guys can really take advantage of that. And then with, with off-speed pitches, he start, gets started so early that it's hard to, to react and, and, and adjust to an off-speed thing. So last year, I mean, just huge strides with, with 23 homers is great, but also he had a, a big bump in OPS. is up to 839, which is you know far, far above his, his 740 career average. So a lot of promise there, and his, his you know defense in right field is, is okay. He looks a little bit like a giraffe sometimes running around because he's got such long legs and not, not the uh, smoothest always in the outfield, but he's got a great arm. So he's got speed. He's got power in there uh he needs to stay healthy because the previous year he was hampered by hamstring injuries and i think three or four of them so is a guy definitely to watch out for but if if the pirates are going to take that next step forward they certainly need their right fielder too as well all right so lastly as jeff alluded to we ask each of our guests in this series to give us a predicted win total for the 2019 season now sometimes we include a caveat of oh we've still got some time before opening day and who knows what moves they might make but in the pirates case i think we can probably be pretty confident that this will be the team that they take into the actual season or close to it so what do you think where do they end up wins wise we can re-record if they sign Machado, right? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
if not for a, for a Machado ad, I think this is a better team than last year. We'll see where exactly that puts them. They did really well in the division but last year. That was part of the reason they, they were able to get above 500, but they were terrible outside of it. They need to be able to win in the division, and the division is getting better. So I think it's going to be hard to make huge strides there. I would give them a small upgrade. I will say they will be a 85-86 win team. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we thank you for talking to us for almost half an hour about the Pirates, even though the Pirates gave us almost nothing to talk about, or almost <laughs> nothing good at least. But uh, you should all read Stephen's coverage of the Pirates and Pittsburgh sports. You can find him in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, and you can find him on Twitter at Stephen J. Nesbitt. Thanks very much, Stephen. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. By the way, postscript on the JT Realmuto trade. It's funny, when we discussed the deal, we talked mostly about the Phillies angle and we talked about the return the Marlins got. We didn't really talk about why the Marlins wanted or needed to trade the best catcher in baseball because it was just taken for granted. That's what the Marlins do. That's what they've been trying to do. Whenever the Marlins have a good player, eventually he gets traded. And Sam wrote about that actually on Friday at ESPN. He updated the count of the 25 best players players in Marlins history by war, 23 have now been traded, and the only two exceptions are A.J. Burnett and, of course, Jose Fernandez, and the Marlins made attempts to trade both of them. So the Marlins continue to be a strange outlier in that respect. You can always count on them to come up with good players, but you can also always count on them to get rid of them. It's an indictment of that entire organization, of course, but at this point, it's par for the course. We don't even bat an eye when we see the rumors, and when Real Mudo doesn't want to consider an extension, we all just shrug and say, yeah, of course, why would you? So we'll know things have changed for the Marlins if they ever do, if they actually lock up one of their players really long term and then keep him. And one other note on the Phillies' end of that deal, we mentioned that Jorge Alfaro is a better framer than Real Mudo, but Alfaro wasn't really a good framer before last season. He really worked on it, and the Phillies helped him get better with Craig Driver, their catching coach, working with him every day. So it's possible that the Phillies could improve Realmuto's framing. He's older than Alfaro was, obviously, and maybe he's more set in his ways. Maybe he just doesn't have the raw ability to do it, but it's not impossible that he could improve that weakness, or at least relative weakness, in his game, and then he'd really be an MVP-type player. You can support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to support the podcast. Sean P. Montana, Kyle Crow, Mark Eschen, Thomas Klulau, and Mick Reinhard. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast at or via the Patreon messaging system. Even though it's more difficult for us to get to email shows during the team preview series. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Second and last reminder to vote in the Saber Analytics Conference Research Awards. Voting closes on Monday night. Jeff and I both have pieces nominated, as do many other excellent writers. You can vote at Sabre.org. You can vote at BP, Fangraphs, Hardball Times, Beyond the Box Score. Each site counts 20% toward the total. Been nominated for a bunch of these things and have never won, and it would be nice to, but there are some other really excellent pieces in the same categories. Jeff and I are in different categories, but couldn't blame you for voting for any of the nominated pieces, so just do yourself a favor and go check them out. Regardless of which one gets your vote, you can pre-order my book, 
with Travis Sachik, the MVP machine. Many of you already have, which is much appreciated. It comes out late this spring. Now, going by the original order we had set, the next preview podcast was supposed to be the Braves and the Phillies, all NL East affair. I think I'm going to make an executive decision and just postpone the Phillies a little bit more. It just still feels like their offseason is incomplete. So we'll give them a little more time to sign Harper or Machado or whatever they're going to do. Ultimately, the order of these previews is less important than the content. You can go look up projections anytime you want. And of course, they get updated as the spring proceeds. So we'll be back next time, I believe, with the Braves and the Diamondbacks. We hope you have a wonderful weekend and we'll talk to you early next week. 